Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. Well, I'm so pleased you've joined me today because I've got an excellent interview lined up. On a recent mastermind session, Asad Tariq joined us to share his property experiences. He's done both commercial and development work, and he talks through a number of different deals and his top insights for those that are just getting started in commercial. Make sure you listen through to the end for his four important tips on sourcing your first commercial deals. So let's just jump straight in and have a listen. Welcome, Asad. Thanks so much for um, joining us on the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Super to have you. I, it, I've been looking forward to this because when we met, um, I realized pretty quickly you've been doing lots of different types of development, not just in commercial, but also in resi. I know you've got some interesting stuff to share with, with us. So if you could maybe just tell us right now what's going on, where you're yeah. at, and then we can go back to maybe a little bit earlier on, because what I like to do on the podcast is go through some of the things that people have experienced slash felt as they've gone through it, because a lot of the challenge is in our own heads, isn't it, with this, this yeah. stuff? So maybe you could just tell us quickly what sort of projects you're working on right now. Yep. So at the moment, we're working on mainly um, service accommodation units. So we're in the process of looking at units in Glasgow, Edinburgh, which are going to be full service accommodation. So automated systems. So you've gone into the hotel or into the apartments, there'll be like a block of eight or 10. So we aren't doing single service accommodation units. It's like blocks of eight, blocks of 10. Um, so we're working on that in the central belt right now. Uh, the reason why I started this one was because we've done new builds over in Isle of Skye. So two, two holiday homes, which we built over in Isle of Skye just last year, which were really, really like top of the range ones just outside um, Broadford. So from there, we've kind of got that buzz of getting into service accommodation. So it's a new avenue for us. Um, and we've been working on that for a while now, uh, which is I would say probably now about a year we've been into the market now. So we've got the full system ready. We've got the company ready. We've got the full setup and all the registrations that you need to do for your compliances for service accommodation. We've built them from the scratch. So we've built them from the ground out as well. It's just a matter of now getting one that we can get onto our, onto our system. So we're working on that at the moment, trying to grow the service side of the business. Um, it's something that we've seen is there's a, is a nice lucrative part. So like with the residential, with the buy-to-lets, I've never actually done buy-to-lets in the past. It was something that was always a little bit iffy about. The returns were a little lower. So it was always kind of like 
not something that attracted me in the property world. Um, so commercial was my main one. And then we started pivoting towards service accommodation just by obviously people in our network and watching them grow with the service side. And then we've obviously got the experience with the development. So I thought, you know what, why do we combine these together and develop from the ground out and then hold these as service accommodation as a, as, a, as a trading business. So now we've got our development company, our investment company that will hold the property and then our operating business, which is running it as service accommodation. So we've got like three parts all under one umbrella. So it sounds familiar in, in our serviced office space. Yeah, develop it out, invest in it, develop it out, and then run the actual operation yeah. side of it. Yes, yes. And of That's, course, you don't have to do all of them, do you? You could do one well, of them or two of them or whatever you wish. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's going on at the moment. We are working on one in Brucefield Industrial Estate. That's the new build, so commercial industrial units. So for new build, so we're just processing the numbers on this one. Um, we have another one which we've been working on in Dunfermline. So it's on New Road. It's on New Row Road in Dunfermline. So that was shops on the ground floor and then two blocks of service offices above. I don't know if, you've, if you're aware of this one or have you seen this one, but the direct vendor, they've got planning permission now for eight apartments on the second floor, but we're thinking about, right, okay, if we buy this off and maybe build 16 apartments on the top and then leave the ground floor as commercial. Okay. So this is a new one, which has just came on the on the radar. Um, the numbers and things have gone on and surveys and things are being done at the moment. So, and you've, okay. also done, you've also done industrial, and I want to dive into that a little bit more a little yeah. bit more later on yeah. but your your first commercial was for, forgive me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure you bought a building that you were operating from is that not right yeah yeah that's right yes so just tell us a little bit about what was your actual business that you were running before you yeah. sort of moved into that commercial side so i started in the property business when i was about 18 years old so I was quite young at the time, and the the way that I got started is actually quite is actually getting thrown into the deep end instead of starting from like your your usual bite to legs, get experience building yourself up. So mine was when my father was in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight during the the recession time. RBS basically pulled the plug on him, and um, at that time they basically called in all the loans, everything. And we lost our family home, we lost our businesses, we lost our cars, everything basically just went down. However, I, from the age of probably about 12, 13, I started doing eBay Amazon. So it was something that I had a buzz about. So I was really young at the time, it was just a brand new business and I kept growing it, growing it, growing it. And throughout school, college, I always done eBay and Amazon but it was more part of my father's business. So he had his import-export business. I carried on doing the eBay Amazon business, became into a successful business, then started doing drop shipping, started doing a lot of um, our own branded websites and wholesaling a lot of products online. So grew that business to a certain level and that business was running inside of the commercial premises that you're, you're talking about. So I grew the business to quite a substantial amount. Um, when I sold the business about three years ago, it was turning over around about 50000 a week just on eBay and Amazon. Um, so it was, a, it was a really lucrative business. Well, I know the e-commerce the, the e market is a growing market. We all see it as one of these big things at the moment, especially with the pandemic and things. So e-commerce is something that I think everyone should have their fingers in um, because the market is moving towards 
online buying all the time. We've seen this happening constantly. So I think by having the e-commerce and the commercial property, you can actually combine them together quite nicely. So like the industrial units, we can see the high streets, they're going down, but then we can see the commercial units, they're now on a boom because everyone now wants to be selling online. So I've got, so I do the, I do help a lot of people, like I do a lot of help setting people up with online businesses, so eBay, Amazon, their own websites, consulting them and getting the system ready. I've got my own family still in the, in, in the business as well. So my wife, she does her own online business. My father, he does his own online business. But coming back to property, so back in 2007, when he went into his um, financial difficulties, we lost everything. And at that time, I, <clears throat> when he went through his um, the liquidation and bankruptcy, and that's where I basically came on board. I was like, right, okay, I need to help him and get him out of this financial difficulty that he's in. So I came on board, started doing a lot of research. I was about 18 at the time. And that was it. Like just started speaking to the banks, speaking to the liquidators, Built up the relationship with the liquidators, started building up the relationship with the accountants, and um, from there moved on to signing, speaking to RBS's global restructuring team. So the DRG with the background, the back end. So like so at 18, I was dealing with like liquidators and all these kind of people. It was, it was crazy at the time. Like thinking back now is actually quite scary. But because of all, even though I was thrown into the deep end, I wouldn't have learned everything that I've learned because I've been through it all myself now. So we bought up that relationship with the liquidators and started speaking to GRG and ended up buying back the commercial unit that dad had with them at the time. So this premises was, so just to give you an insight, so this one here, it was he had a mortgage on there with RBS, I think for 650000 And RBS had called in the loans, um, and we ended up negotiating with the GRG group and we ended up buying this back for £290,000, right? So that was like a big cha-ching moment for us. Ended up buying the same premises back, 290000 And obviously, when I bought the unit, I just came into the business. Like So for me, I had the online business running, but then we took over the warehouse and the online business couldn't carry on paying for the whole premises so when we bought the premises back i was like right okay the rates on this unit is forty-two thousand pound a year or forty-four thousand pound a year <clears throat> so at that time the, the the whole mindset which was running was how can we reduce our rates so that it's more cost efficient for us to get this business. So we've got the online business. There's a little bit of sale coming in from here, but we can't put too much pressure on this business because there isn't that much profit here at the moment. So I was studying at the time and running this business. It was turning over a decent amount of money for, for what it was at the time, but it couldn't afford to pay a rental for the premises and then carry on paying the rates. <clears throat> so at that time, we got a rates assessor to come in. And the rates assessor came in and he goes, like, why don't you split the unit at 10,000 square foot? So that's what we've done. Split the unit at 10,000 square foot. That then reduced the rateable value under the 15,000, which then qualified for the small business rates relief. And with everything going into, on board, the rates were basically free. So there was no rates to be paid on the premises. We still had about 30,000 square foot, which was vacant. And because we had a wall in there and it was a vacant part of the premises, that was also qualifying for vacant rates relief. 
So by spending like 20 odd thousand pounds and putting a wall in, splitting the electrics, we had saved or selling over 40,000 pounds a year on the wow. rateable so the, overall, <clears throat> so the overall size was about 40,000 yeah, 40, it was about 40, it's about two and a half acres is the site, and the actual build is about 42, I think it's 42 and a half thousand square foot. Yeah, so, I mean, what we're talking about here, for, for those that aren't familiar with business rates in Scotland, or indeed in the UK, is just, it's basically the property taxes, right? And in, in Scotland and the rest of the UK now, if you're not careful, um, you end up being charged for having empty space. So not only do you not have a tenant paying you income, but you also may have to pay the local government the privilege for having such an empty space. So it's really important to try and mitigate your rate. So basically the guy actually came in and said to you, you need to split this down, which is very helpful. Yeah. So, so what do you do with the other four? What do you do with the other 30? Yeah, just, again, just taking on from what you're saying there, Jerry, it's all about your power team, isn't it? So yeah. it's about, it doesn't matter who you are, like, when you're in the commercial world, you need to make sure that you've got your right power team around you. So you need to make sure that you've got a rates assessor who's qualified and they've, they've got the understanding about industrial and commercial premises. You've got the right accountant that understands it because the amount of benefits that you've got in the commercial world, like you know yourself, your capital allowances, your R&D claims, your solicitors. So if you've got a residential solicitor, you don't want them to be doing a commercial least for you because it can just cause so many issues for you in the future. Um, I'm actually treat, I'm, I'm actually helping one person, one of my mentees, and they've been in this position. They've signed up on an FRI lease, and it's been three years now. They've been running the shop, and now the owner landlord has came in done a survey and went, "We need a EICR certificate for the premises." And to get the EICR certificate, they need to upgrade all the electrics. They need to get everything up to standard. And he's like, well, you gave me the premises in that state. So like, you should be fixing this. It's not my problem. But he is, But when he showed me the lease, I'm like, no. I goes, you've signed an FRI lease. Like, you need to give this back in the right order, even if it wasn't working when you took it over. Yeah. But the reason that he's in this situation is because he used a residential solicitor for, for residential houses. So he's looked at the lease. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. As a standard five-year lease, FRI lease, sign on the paper. But what he should have done was use a commercial solicitor who's going to go in and put in a schedule up front of what the condition is, how the property is at the moment, so that if this problem ever did occur, they had their backup behind them. So it's just important having that right power team. So for me, I spoke to the accountant. I understood how the rates work, spoke to a rates assessor. So the council have their own rates assessors who will come out like the Lothian boards the valuation board but obviously they want to be charging you the highest possible that they can take off you so instead of working with them we went to an independent valuation assessor who came on board he'd done his survey and he told us look these are all the areas that you'll be paying on so if it's a warehouse you'll be paying x amount of money if it's offices you'll be paying slightly higher rates and if it's mezzanine flooring, you'd be paying a slightly higher rate. So all the information that we got together, we thought, right, okay, the cheapest way is having an open warehouse space, minimum offices, and minimum mezzanine flooring. And by doing that, splitting the unit up in the right order, we ended up getting rates free on that premises. So the other part was 42. So coming back to your question now, so the, rate, the, the remaining part of the unit, we ended up splitting, we marketed the unit, um, through, I think it was DM Hall and Jim Pollux at the time, and rented out one of the units. We got a tenant to come on board who basically rented out about 
20 odd thousand offers, 18 to 20,000 square foot. So we signed that lease. And because he was only taking 20,000 square foot, we had an additional 10,000 square foot empty. So we thought, right, okay, there's another small investment. Let's make another warehouse. So that then generated three warehouses, 20,000 pounds roughly per one. Got the tenant and signed up the FRI lease for us for about 10, I think it was like a 10 year FRI lease, 50,000 pounds a year. And as soon as it went on the market, the final one, like the 10,000 square foot unit, as soon as that went onto the market, within a week, we had a tenant taking over this one as well. So we were like, so this is 10,000 square foot, that was about three pounds a square foot. So we had 30,000 pounds a year coming in from them. The the bigger unit had 50,000 pounds coming in from them. And then obviously, so we've went from paying 40,000 pounds a year rates and running our business from there to saving that 40,000 pounds and having an income of about 80 grand per year. So for me, that was like a cha-ching moment. I was like, right, okay, do you know what? This is good. This is exciting. Right. And that's where I got into the commercial. And that was like, for me, that was my first property that I'd ever bought. So a lot of people, like I was 18 at the time. So when I went to the banks, I remember um, RBS closed our student accounts. So I had a student account and they basically, because we were living at the same address, they closed our student accounts as well. Right. And when we went to Lloyd's and all these banks, everyone would just click, no, we're not touching this. It's too risky. But we ended up going to, I think <clears throat> they're called Together Finance now, but I can't remember what they used to call Freedom Finance it was, I think, in the past. So that's what they were known as before now, which they are Together Finance. Challenger Banks, we went to them, they took us, took us on, sent, gave them a business business um, report, business plan, this is what our plans are, this is what I want to do. We'll split the unit up, we can get the rates down, this is the research that I've done, I can get rental income coming in from here. Took it on, high interest rate, and after about, I think it was about 18 months, I was into the loan, ended up building that relationship with the Bank of Scotland. So now we work with um, uh, what's it? Adam Rinto. So Adam was one of the top commercial bankers in um, Bank of Scotland. So like, at his level, there's maybe like two people in Scotland. So Adam, we started working with him. At the time, he was a standard banking manager. And now obviously he's worked himself up and he's like one of the top managers in Bank of Scotland, we've built that relationship up with him. So he's we've got that connection with him. He took us on, we refight, we got the, the warehouse revalued. The valuation came in about 500,000 at the time. So I bought it for 290, within about 18 months, revaluation came in about 500 odd grand. So we refinanced it. So it's all that's all based on the income change. Did all you have to spend much on it? At this time, it was about 60 to 80,000. So for putting in a wall, the toilets, fire alarm, emergency lights were probably about 20,000 per unit. And did you put in toilets in each unit or just as a communal area? Are they all really very much independent units now? Independent units. Every yeah. unit's got their own roller door, entrance, fire exits. Obviously, you need to go through planning and building control. So we went through building control. We got all the approvals and things in place for that. So the emergency lights you've got, fire alarms, um, intruder alarm isn't, compulsory but something that we've put in every unit is just like yeah. a a golden like a little pulling point for them just to come on board with us um and then you had your so you've got your roller door and your lights so all the meat all the electric so we have to split the electric so we submeter each unit as well individually and yeah so 
it's not major work. Like when people look at commercial, they get scared. They're like, oh, it's commercial. I don't know. It's a big investment. It's a big risk. But to be honest with you, splitting a larger shop into a residential house, like I've done conversions from commercial to residential. The amount of insulation and soundproofing that they want done is just ridiculous, right? Whereas with a warehouse, it's just a wall. Yeah, a 60-minute wall, so it's like double-sheet plasterboard, either side is sufficient. Or you can go up with a concrete block wall and then plasterboard at the top. So the actual work which is involved is a lot less than what's involved with commercial um, conversions. What did you do on the utilities? Did you split them up? Yeah, yeah. Put in separate ones? This is just the, this is the start. So with this one, we ended up getting a bad tenant. So the £50,000 a year tenant was, was not a good tenant. Their free rent period finished and they ended up not paying a rent. So we went through all the legal legality to try and get them out, got them out of the unit. And we thought, right, okay, what are we going to do here? We are losing money and not paying us a rent. How do we get this fixed? So the first thing that we thought was, why do we split the unit into another unit? see if we can split this to another 10,000 square foot and see how it goes. So we ended up advertising on Right Move Commercial units available from two things. So one bay would work out about 2,500 square foot. Yep. So we basically advertised from 2,500 square foot up to 20,000 square foot units available. So this was like after the refinance and everything had been done. There was a little bit of rental income coming in at the start, but then it all just like slowed down and then they went through financial difficulties of the tenant that... So <clears throat> when we advertised it, we ended up finding good tenants, right? And they were coming in and saying, right, okay, we need 5,000 square foot. So when the 5,000 square foot tenant came in, we put a wall in at 5,000 square foot, but the 5,000 square foot, instead of charging two, three pounds, it went up to five, six pounds, right? So the, the overall rental that we were charging per square foot dramatically started changing. Yeah. So within a week of that tenant signing the FRI lease with us and us starting the work, before we had even completed this unit, we had a list of three other tenants coming on board who all wanted 5,000 square foot units. So we quickly split this one. And then the online business, we had 10,000 square foot. So we split this one as well. And we just quickly, rapidly changed it. And it's all now eight units. So it's like a full industrial estate, eight warehouses, and the rental income went from like three pounds or so forty thousand square foot at three pounds, what one hundred and twenty grand a year, and now we're sitting at about five six pounds a square foot. So the rental income just dramatically went up. And then at that time, we then refinanced it again. So the commercial valuations came in at so it's probably cost us in the region of about hundred thousand to get all the work done. Um, revalued at bricks and mortar at the time eight hundred and fifty thousand. Right, so we bought it for two ninety, spent a few hundred thousand on it, and now it's worth that. And the commercial valuation was coming in for about one point two, one point four million. When when did you get that last valuation? It's probably been about three years on this one. Yeah. So if you had and it again, now, well, yeah. now it's actually skyrocketing. <laughs> so the reason, like, what we say to all of our students and mentees and things, it's all about your market research. Like for me. Everybody was saying, just leave it, like move on, just start a new business, start in the garage, just don't take the stress. Like you're you're young, you don't need to worry about all these kind of things and buy property and you're going to get stuck with the commercial mortgages and you're going to get commercial this and that. The fear that everyone was putting in, but in my mind, I knew that this area right now it is down. 
but in the next five years, eight years, it's going to be a really up and coming area. So like with us doing our research, like with the, the local council redevelopment scheme, regeneration scheme, there was a new motorway junction coming here. So junction 4A for Heartlands. So anyone who travels from Edinburgh to Glasgow, you'll be aware of the 4A junction. That was coming there with Starbucks, the Shell, KFC, McDonald's. So now it's like a totally different place. It's like the main heart junction of the M8. And you've got all these big national, multinational brands which have now opened up in the area. So obviously that market value will skyrocket now. So like, but we had done our research, it took a long time to get there, but now this property is, in my eyes, well, the one down below from us, they valued this one, which is about, is working out about 60, 60 pound a square, 60 pound a square foot, I think it was. Let me just do a calculation for you. So 42,000 square foot. So if we were valuing that with their rates, that's 2.5 billion would be, the, would be the commercial valuation if we're going just with what the unit down the road is sold for. Very, very, very good. That's taken a period of time though, hasn't it? So, and, and you've uh, kind of taken a route that's slightly different than most, like you yeah. said earlier on. I mean, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they, they're maybe in residential right now and they're thinking, how do I sidestep into commercial? Yeah, and they they may not have your confidence. I, I've got a question to ask you actually about your confidence. We're going to come back to that in a second. But you know, they may not have your confidence. And they're looking at just getting started. Looking back at the process you went through, what are some of the things that you might have done differently, or or you think might be applicable to people that are just getting started now? That maybe for you might have been easy but for some people right now might be struggling. Is there any thoughts you would have on people that are getting started? So overall, I would say the commercial world is actually a lot easier once you've took that step, you've educated yourself, you've got the right understanding behind you. It's actually a lot easier than the buy to let. So like having the commercial surveyors. So a commercial surveyor isn't like your standard surveyor that's coming on board. Like this guy is someone who is probably doing a few surveys per week, he's not out there doing survey after survey, and you can build that one-to-one relationship with him. So that's a huge benefit, which I've found. So by having that one-to-one relationship with these commercial surveyors, you can build that reputation with them quite quickly. So like, for example, we were working with DM Paul or Graham and Sibbles or allied surveyors, all these surveyors in the, like who are dealing with commercial property, they just have that more one-to-one relationship with you. You can sit down with them, have a coffee, you can speak, you can appoint them to act on your behalf as your, like, you could call it a sourcing agent, you can pay them a fee, right? Okay, here's a fee, look for this type of property for us, give them your criteria. So once you start building that relationship, getting in the door is difficult because they've already got that niche market that they're working with. Like when they've got that property, they already have three, four, five investors that they're working with. So they'll pick up the phone. Hi, I said, we've got this property available. It's going to be on the market in a few weeks. What's your thoughts? Most of the time, if it's a decent deal, is when before it's even came on to right move. Yeah. So, wait, so you need to start building that report. It's about did you find when you started, though, did you find when you started that process that of the half a dozen agents that you called, that not everybody actually took you seriously? Or were they all thinking, no, this is the man, I need to build a relationship with this guy, he's going somewhere? So, to be honest with you, so because 
my my dad had was in the business for so long, so he had a lot of contacts like United Cash and Carry, Share Brothers, and all these big brands like companies which are out there in Central Scotland. Like, he had these connections with these people, like top top people. Anyway, so when I came into the property, I never just picked up the phone and went, "Hi, can I speak to this this company or that company?" I actually still have a funny one. I still remember <clears throat> the way like how mine started was. We were we were sitting at um, so there was like there was one of our family friends who's a property investor, uh, quite high up, multi. He came on the online dragon and things as well. So on dragons then online dragons then, Shaft Russell. So he was actually he's like our family friend, really close. Like he helped me a lot. Like I couldn't like without his support, he was going through a rough patch at the time as well. But he had supported me, so I still remember I used to have a little goatee and things and. He was like, oh, come to the office, but make sure you're wearing a suit and make sure you're nicely dressed up <clears throat> and come to the office and we're going to, I'm going to introduce you to someone and we'll have a chat. So I went to the office, sat down, and there's this guy sitting in the corner, never met him before, didn't know who he was. We just sat down at the table and we started chatting. So we were doing like online sales for like beds, furniture, and all the usual stuff that we were selling on eBay and Amazon. So I was trying to clear as much stock the heavy stock that I had so that we could try and invest in building the walls and try and get as much money recouped as we could. So we sat down at the table and Shaft goes to me, could you, we used to furnish a lot of his houses at the time as well. So any house that he had or apartments in Edinburgh or Glasgow, we used to furnish them. So we could you get us X, Y, and Z furniture for all these properties? How, how much do you have? And I went, oh, we've probably got about 10 grand's worth of furniture lying there at the time. And he looked at me and he went, right, okay, he goes, I tell you what, he goes, I'll flip this coin and you tell me heads or tails. And if you win, I'll double whatever the value of the furniture is. But if you lose, you have to give me all your furniture for free. So I'm sitting there and I was like, right, okay, cool. I was like, this is scary. So I done it and he won. And I was like, shit. <laughs> right, okay. So I picked up the phone, hello, Helen, right, okay, could you send the driver all the furniture? It's going to Shaft Rousseau's place. He used to have a place called... I think it was big offers or something at Newbridge is now the Vaporizers warehouse. So it was in there. I was like, just send all the stock to you. But during that two minute conversation or 10 minute conversation, I was a bit like, shit, what's just happened? Like, I've just lost so much money and I'm going through all this difficult time. But I took that risk, right? But the guy sitting next to us at the time was actually one of the main directors in DM Hall. So the reason that he brought me over to the meeting wasn't to get the furniture it was to introduce me to the him so the reason and then as soon as i done that i stuck to my word and phoned the office and said all the furniture and i'll sort it out later on he stood up and he went nice to meet you asad he goes he told me that you're a loyal person and i'm happy to work with you and support you and do what i need to do so i had i was like you could say lucky right but at the same time it's about that loyalty and trust so i built that up there was a recommendation from someone, but I pulled through, done what I had to do. Yeah, maybe lost £12,000 worth of furniture, right? But I bought that relationship, which has been with me for the last, like, now 13 years. Is that a recommended route into working with agents? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not sure. I'm, not, I'm pretty sure that is a unique one to you. A unique one to me, but when it comes to other people, like, that's one agent, right? And yeah. then it's about that 
it's about building that reputation. So like when I'll give you, like, we've got like a real life example now, like you've got Nick and Caroline, so they've bought their hotel and things that they're doing in, um, in Edinburgh town centre. So they've never bought of a commercial agent. And then they had spoke to me, we were chatting about it. Their agent was somebody that I had known. So when we were chatting, we had a conflict of interest. So I wrote an email saying, look, there's a conflict of interest, can't offer on this property. So the first question that they ask is, who's the conflict of interest with? And then you start chatting, and then I gave a good report for Caroline and Nick. Yes. So that report that they've now got is in the back of their head. So when that goes to closing date, they're going to be looking at, right, okay, we've been recommended from this person that we're working with. So if you are working with the right people, like Jerry, if somebody comes to you, you're going to recommend them to an agent, that relationship is going to be really, really powerful. If somebody comes to me and I'm helping them, and when I recommend them to an agent, that becomes quite powerful. And then this, the, <clears throat> it's about being consistent. Like your, your reputation isn't going to happen straight away. It's never going to happen straight away. It's about doing your viewings, putting offers in, and pulling through. So if you do, maybe the first one might take you a while to get through the door. But after you've done one, two, three, four offers, the agent's going to know, right, okay, this guy's serious. I'll start working with him. So it's just about building that reputation up. And there's nothing magical that you can do. It's just about, like, we were working in, when we started off in Isle of Sky. Isle of Sky is a really, really, really knit community. Like, they do not like outsiders at all. Like, they just, like, they want to keep everything in-house. It's a really tight community over there. So, like, when we went to Isle of Sky to do brand new build developments, even, even the building merchants didn't want to supply us material because we were buying the material at probably a cheaper rate than what they were bringing it in for, right? So when we were going in and buying like 20 pallets of plasterboard, they couldn't even match the prices that we were looking at. So like it took a long time. So we had to build the relationship up with the people over there, show them that we're not here to steal your business. We need to work with you. But now is the total opposite. We've got that relationship with all the people over in Sky. You know? So like we can go there anytime, start a new project. Everyone knows you. You've built that trust. You've brought the loyalty up. So it's the same with the commercial agents, accountants, architects. Everything is about having that power team and building your relationship with them. So what, what you're saying is there's no quick fix. There's no silver bullet. You do have to go and put time into this and have patience with yourself as well as others. Don't, don't give up at the first hurdle and think it's something to do with you. I did have a question about confidence. I was going to ask you, has your confidence ever got you into trouble? And maybe, maybe your gamble on the furniture is, is, is an example. <laughs> has there been any other, any other, because you, you've got super confidence, right? I don't know if you started out like that, but has it ever got you into trouble? Have you ever done deals that maybe, do you know what, maybe I shouldn't have done that? Or have you always managed to keep a measured approach to these uh, things? To be honest with you, obviously confidence comes with experience, isn't it? Yeah. So without having experience, then you're, it's difficult to have that confidence there. I think once you've got experience behind you, that confidence builds up. But I've been one of those ones, like, I'll take risks. And even if even if I'm like, right, okay, do you know what? I've done this. I still need to pull through kind of thing. I just make it work. Like, I don't know how. Like, it's just about... Like, make I, the I decision I and then... It's just make a decision. Make, it, if make, I make it right. So my theory is this. Two exit strategies... As long as two exit strategies are working, you pull the trigger. So that's like my mindset. And if I'm sitting there, I could be sitting there with a phone calculation, back of a fag packet, do a quick calculation, and I'll be like, right, okay, that project can work. 
there's one exit that we can flip it on. There's a second exit we can rent it out. If there's two exit strategies, I'll put in an offer and I'll pull the trigger, try and sign up a deal. So like, that's the kind of way that I've got to now. So whenever, it was like, I wouldn't say I've ever made any mistakes, but I have pivoted during our process. Like, so we've never done buy to let. But when I bought the, the houses, we bought a block of apartments in Bathgate, Westfield, um, and they were to flip. So the plan was, okay, we'll flip these on and take out a capital payment, take out some capital and use this funding to go and buy some more premises, buy land, do other developments. But we ended up changing this project to a buy and hold, build and hold, sorry. So we bought the project out, got it complete, went to, we had funded it through Bank of Scotland, got the whole process complete, moved it to Aldermore on a 75% buy to let mortgage. And once the development was complete, pulled out 150,000 for the for the cost for the um after paying off all your development loans and all the costs, pulled out 150,000 pounds extra, put that was for us for going on to the next project, stuck it onto a 75% buy to let mortgage interest only, and it was cash flow on about two and a half, two thousand nine hundred pounds a month. So I've never done buy to lets and I've never actually wanted buy to lets. I've always been like builds or service accommodation or commercial property. But then I thought, you know what, it's probably good to have that pyramid. So the pyramid of property, have your buy to let stable. Even though your commercial comes back down to here, it's still a rental income. So I thought, let's secure <clears throat> this pyramid at the bottom. So we held those properties, nice little block. Within about two weeks, had them all rented out, cash flowing. And touch wood, they've been great. They've been great little learners for us. And exactly, even through the pandemic, because we had split our risk portfolio, uh, our risk and um, throughout our portfolio, we had tenants like gyms which had no income. They were totally closed during the pandemic. But then we had companies like transport companies in the sun of the year, and they were booming through the through the pandemic. Then you had your buy to lets, so we had good tenants. So again, they were paying all their money throughout the pandemic and. There was that good balance there for us. So even if one tenant wasn't paying, the other tenants would cover it. So even if the commercial premises were going down, then the residentials were there to support it. Serviced accommodation, if that was down in the tourism area, and then serviced accommodation and the working areas like doctors, hospitals, and near these, they were all booming. So <clears throat> it's great as you as you as you have you have time building up your portfolio, you can start moving into that diversity, can't you? Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to ask you about your thoughts on the current market, but just before I go on to that, if you could just give us a couple of thoughts or, or just give you a chance to think of numbers here. For those that are listening that are trying to deal with agents, just to go back to that, how many offers are you typically putting in before you get a deal? So that's the first question. And the second part is, you know, how many... I guess how many deals are you looking at with agents? Yeah, the agents are selling you. It's not selling you. That the agents are sending to you that you're actually spending time to look at, but saying no, these are not for me. What yeah. I'm trying to get at here is what kind of volume yeah. are you going through to get deals? But equally, yeah. you know, people that are starting out think, well, you know, I don't want to go and see too many projects and then tell the agent no because they'll think I'm a time waster. So it's just to actually give people just a bit of context around 
how many offers you're you're putting in? How many deals you're looking at? They're coming through <coughs> agents because I know that a lot of stuff you're looking at now does come through agents. And as you say, you've got yourself into that tier where they're sending you the deal before it necessarily yeah. goes to the market. So, just what's your thoughts around that, Asa? So, see, to be honest with you, so you can't. The biggest problem is when people start ex- like not focusing on their strategy. So you need to have that focus, that mindset. Where I'm investing, what I'm investing in, and sticking to it so if you're coming new on board you don't want to be sitting there saying right, i want an industrial warehouse i want all the high street i want to be milk building starbucks and drive-throughs and greg's drive-throughs you need to like stream streamline it a little bit and focus on what do you want to be working on in the commercial side so if you want to target the high street then it's about only speaking to the agents about high streets Right, you don't want to be going to them and saying, I want industrial units, I want warehouses, yeah. I want land, I want everything that you've got. Because as soon as you do that, they're going to send you tens and thousands of deals, right? And when they deals start coming through, you're not going to have the time to go through them. So if you don't have the time to go through them and then you don't offer, and then the reputation starts going down, like this guy here is actually wasting our time. But if you go in with a plan and you say, Right, okay, my focus at the moment as industrial warehouses. So I know that industrial warehouses are required and what I want to be doing with industrial warehouses, I'm buying them and splitting them. Or I want to be doing a lot of e-commerce. So what, how can we bring e-commerce traders into one premises and build this into a strategy? But once you've got that focus, you then say to the agent, look, I'm looking for a warehouse. It must be a minimum of this size. This is how many units I need out of there. And this is the rental that we're looking to achieve. So then they will narrow down the search and you may get one or two deals a week, right? And because these deals are with the strategy that you're looking to do, when you do your numbers on it, you know if it's going to work or not. So if, as soon as it comes through, it ticks the strategy box, it ticks the investment area box, you do your numbers and exactly like I said before, recapping on it, if there's two exit strategies, pull the trigger. Simple as that. So. In terms of your strategies, you're looking at a much broader um, bag of different things now. But but when you were looking more at the industrial side, just picking that out as an example, if I can just press you on it, you, you know how how typically how many agents are you dealing with? How many deals would you get a chance to look at? Right. Okay. In, so in what, yeah. So what I what I will do normally is I'll choose maybe one or two agents that I'll work closely with. So it's about building that relationship that we spoke about before you might not get on with the guy at allied surveyors but you might have for example a passion that you both like cars right and you're with the dm hall guy and he loves cars you love cars so you've got that connection with them so what i would typically do is even if we have to pay a little bit extra money we would appoint them to work on our behalf and have a couple of agents. So they've got that direct connection. So Shepherds works with DM Hall all the time. So the two guys know each other. So we will go to them and say, right, look, I want this premises. This is what we're looking for. This is they'll then send out a message to all of their their surveyors and competitors, all the other surveyors in the market. Then everything comes back to them. They will then propose them to us. And because they know what our strategy is and what income that we need they will bypass a lot of it before they even give it to you because they don't want to waste your time. Yeah, so they're doing quite a lot of filtering. But what you've you've done is you've actually gone to these guys. It's not just just relationship there. There is, you know, passing my hand with silver because you are paying 
You're paying them. You're paying them. They'll ask you, like, you'll be signing a contract up front for 1%. So every premises they bring to you, you're going to source for you. You'll be paying them 1%. That's a good enough fee for them. Yeah. You know, but you don't pay them till everything's concluded. So it's about you pay for what you get. Like, for my mind, we're always using, we always pay our guys more. So if it's our mortgage broker, we will say to them, forget what the bank's paying you commission. I need the cheapest rate. So if they're giving you a cheaper rate, but there's somebody else has got a higher mortgage fee or whatever, you're getting more commission out of it. I don't care. Like you give me the best package and charge me double if you want. Right. And it's exactly the same with our project managers that like you'll give them exactly the same. Like, okay, the QS is priced the project is 200,000 for this development. Like if you build it for 200,000, great. But if you build this any cheaper, right, you get to keep the profit straight up. That's your incentive. So you get a fixed fee. But anything that you save me is yours. And at that time, he's got the QS's report. He's a builder. They're project managers. They can say that it's too tight. I can't build that for any more than 220. And this is the reason. Goes back to the QS. QS clarifies it. Once they're all happy, they shake hands. That's it. So if my project manager pulls off the deal on budget, on time, is my savings for me. But if he saves... He's making himself a good amount of money. So if he says £20,000 on a development, he's made himself his own salary plus 20 grand. Yeah, so, so as for, long as you're sorry, so as long yeah. as you're confident in your numbers, you're yeah. able to, to to go for that and say, right, yeah. I feel comfortable. Here's my margin. This is what I want to do, right? Anything else you can do is for you. Yeah, yeah. And I can see how that would work for sure. Yeah. And just on um the current market, because I did mention that earlier on, and we've spoken about industrial and retail. What what are you what are your thoughts on the current market where we are and where perhaps we're going to be in the next eighteen months? What sort of things are you looking out for just now? So obviously we can see a lot of the the high streets changing, right? The high street a lot of people are saying the high street is dying. To me, the high street is more is changing. So we've seen John Lewis they're building all their apartments. We've seen all these big chains coming on board that are wanting to wanting to come onto the high street and build residential. Um, obviously. Residential means more footfall, more footfall means more commercial. So you can look at it and be like, right, okay, the market's dying and the high street's dying, but it's not, it's just evolving. So it's like the olden days, like when we started doing a lot of research and you're reading, like in back in the days, everyone used to live in the city centers and most most residents used to stay in the, in the, in the cities. And then slowly, slowly, they started moving out to the suburbs and things. But now a lot of people are starting to come back to the city centres with all these developments going on. doesn't matter where we looked. In Fairmont, I'm doing a lot of research right now. In Fairmont, you couldn't buy an apartment. Two-bedroom apartments were going for about 150 grand. They've got new builds, which are coming on the market for 215 now. So like, they're setting a presence. They're building these towers, nice big blocks. So the high street's changing. And I think if we work with them, we can actually take advantage of it. So what I try and do is I'm always looking to Amazon proof everything. So that's like a term that I use quite a bit whenever we're looking at the high street, how can we Amazon proof it? So what <coughs> cannot be sold on Amazon that's always going to be in the high street. For example, your hairdressers, you can't, you, you can't get your hair cut on Amazon. We need to physically walk in. Yeah. They haven't worked that out yet, but I'm sure <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> yeah. And then um, you've got other things such as, um, You've got your 
dessert shops. So these dessert shops they're opening up everywhere. Little franchises like Black Rooster, Peri Peri Chick. All these little people are coming onto the high street as well. There's a lot more of this going on at the moment. Food chains, Instagram food chains are becoming huge. So we're just looking at the trends, like what cannot be taken into Amazon and is always going to be in the high street. And then we're looking at the local area. Like, so if we are looking at an area, we'll be looking at, right, okay, is there a Starbucks in the area? Yes, there is. Is there a Costa in the area? No. Why is there not a Costa here? And then maybe look at a poach in another coffee shop. Or if you're doing it the opposite way, there's a Tesco's around the corner, but there's no local shops in the area. Maybe a news agent or a Tesco Express or a local Sainsbury's could be good in this area because there's development coming with 20 apartments above. Right. So we're always looking at how the high street's working and how it can be beneficial for us in the future and now. So for me, it's always about Amazon proofing the high street. So as long as we can do that, I think there's always going to be a market for commercial. We've seen the shops, like local shops through the pandemic, all the businesses were dying down, but these local news agents, their, their sales went through the roof. So people weren't traveling to the supermarkets and things. They started using their local news agents a lot more. So their sales had increased by 25-30%. Whereas a lot of these um, <coughs> high street stores started coming down. When these local news agents, their sales started increasing. So I think it's just about Amazon proofing your future, yeah. What's, what's your thoughts on office space? You and I were talking about an office building not far away from us the other day. What, what, yeah. what's, your, what's your thoughts on where office is going, what the requirements might be? Uh, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mix. I've done a lot of research on it. I mean, you're looking at the bigger company, companies like WeWorks and all these companies out there. Like, there's a huge increase back in the service offices. And I think it's going to be a new big thing again. I think people have worked from home. They've had that experience of working from home. You don't have the right desks. You don't have the right facilities at home. You've got children crying in the background. You've got dogs in the background. <laughs> so I think yeah. a lot of people um, are going to be missing that facility of working in, a, in, a, in an office space. Um, so I think service offices is going to be an up-and-coming market. Um, and I think it will be booming a lot more. I think this pandemic, the, the hard part is obviously with COVID and with the interactions of people, like this new variant now came out again. So like if this does go overboard, then maybe the the, the, the part of um, the, the distance and the separations between people will be difficult in serviced offices. You'll have more experience in that. But I think overall... It doesn't matter if there's a pandemic or not. I think the future people are going to be moving towards the, um, our our service offices. Because flexible, a lot of my yeah. yeah, my a lot of my family, a lot of them are professionals, accountants and IT specialists, and they're all working for bigger companies. And what these bigger companies have done are saying offices are closed, carry on working from home. But if you're looking at the saving that this person's making. So I've done a couple of calculations, right, just on our family. So they're saving on a bus pass or the train or fuel a couple of hundred pounds, right? And then that couple of hundred pounds that they're saving is in their banking, but they hate working from home because they've got distraction with kids. They don't have enough space. So if you can say to them, like WeWorks, here's a desk, come in whenever you want to use it, and they just pay a monthly subscription, Right. So they could be paying £100 a month, but they've got that desk to go to, right? So they can go to work, they've got that desk, they're socially interacting with a lot of other people. So I think personally, 
service offices are going to be a big thing again. Huge thing. Yeah, certainly we're we, we're certainly seeing our occupancy um, going up and up and up. And it, it is interesting to see some of those, I guess it's a new tranche of customers for us that are coming through that they're not paying the bill, the main the parent works. companies paying the bill. Yeah, yeah and they're exactly. coming in to do a viewing. And in the past, because of our market and we're, the type of offer that we have, most of our tenants' clients paid the bill. Yeah. And now we have a lot more of them coming in now. They do the viewing and then they have to submit it to head office to exactly. get approval exactly. because head office per se is not so much there anymore or they've yeah. changed how the company's working and somebody else is paying the bill. It's quite interesting to see. Yeah. And I'm seeing that as as a new tier of customers as opposed to a replacement because we never yeah. had the big corporates before. Yeah. Now, of course, if you're catering to big corporates, you're a big land securities or a big investment company, well, yeah, I can see why you might be slightly concerned that some of those large occupiers are going. But when you're maybe more at the entry level where a lot of our audience are, yeah. it's another tranche of new customers. It's, it, yeah. it is an exciting place. Right. So just to finish off, Asad, thank, thank you so much for sharing your time. Uh, what I wanted to ask was for somebody who is starting out just now, if yeah. you could just summarize three top tips that you would maybe give them that are starting out. You mentioned there about being focused in on a specific a specific yeah. area, which I, yeah. I'm going to take it as maybe one of those, but what, what other things would you say as top tips? Yeah. So if you're starting off, the number one is your investment area. Pick and choose exactly where you want to invest and focus on that area. That's the, the, the biggest one, because when you see a lot of people who are starting off property, they're on right move and it's like there's national and there's no radius. And it's just like the full area they want to look at. Narrow that search down. Focus on what you want to be investing in. So if you decide, right, okay, I want to be in Manchester or I want to be in Glasgow or I want to be in Edinburgh, just pick your area and start focusing on it. Start picking up the phone, making appointments with agents and start getting out on the street face to face. So go out, meet these agents. Book an appointment for a warehouse, go meet the agent. Once you've had a chat with them, come back home, do your numbers, meet another agent again keep building this reputation with them repeat and rinse and repeat like we might be putting in 10 15 20 offers and every single one's rejected but we are waiting for the offer to be rejected because we will then follow up after two three four weeks so put your offer in if it's rejected don't be disheartened put in an excel make like an excel sheet with the properties that you visited put all your address details in and follow up so put a date in your diary that I'm going to follow up after two weeks. Two weeks later, contact the agent again. So once they start seeing, oh, wait a minute, he's following up on his offers and they know he's serious, that's when they start contacting you back and say, right, okay, I've took your offer back. They're not accepting 400000 but they would accept 420. So instead of the 450 they were looking for, we've had a £30,000 reduction in price. So it's about building that reputation with them. So get out there. <clears throat> read personality books, really important, super important, how to win and influence people, really nice book. Read it, understand how personalities work. You need to really, really know that when you're going to meet the person, how you can get them on board, how you can get them to like you so that they want to talk to you and give you as much information as you possibly can get out of them. So I think that's really important. So build your relationships, focus on the area that you want to be investing in, and what strategy that you want to be using. So if you're focusing on coffee shops, 
and then speaking to the right agents that are dealing with coffee shops because there's always one or two agents or one or two solicitors that are dealing with these if you're focusing on pubs right run down pubs and you're converting converting them to residential maybe start looking at bringing in local supermarkets to that area these pubs have big car parks they're nice areas they already have a liquor license so for people like Tesco's and Sainsbury's, all these type of um, uh, people out there, they can go away and take that premises on for a retail store and they don't need to wait for a liquor license. So it's <coughs> a golden nugget for you, which you can take away from here. So if you see these pubs and things which are closed down, approach them with a different mindset. Like, what can we do to keep this as commercial instead of moving this back to residential? Like, going in for planning for a pub into residential, they need to make sure there's not another pub in the area, there's a certain amount of space for people to go out and drink. Whereas if you're changing this pub into a commercial shop, planning all over this as well. So I think we just need to focus on what one type of strategy and then start working towards that. That's the most important part. Fabulous. So you've said, yeah, focus on an area. Focus on a strategy, build those relationships. And I know there'll be some listening saying, well, if only I knew which bleeding area to focus on. Yeah. But I think sometimes you just have to physically force yourself <laughs> to pick an area. And remember, it's not all about finding a deal in that area. It's about working out how the market works. And what you yeah. might learn in that area will be will be invaluable, even if you don't invest in that area, even if you just discovered, you know what, this area doesn't quite work for my strategy. I'm going to go and try, I'm going to take everything I've learned and I'm going to focus in on this particular area because now I know that it's going to work there. But if you don't actually focus on one area, like you say, and you stay with the scattergun approach, it's very difficult to pin anything down, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That's the same for strategy too, isn't it? You know, you focus on one, learn lots and then if it works out that's not quite the right one for you well at least you've worked that out now pivot learn how to pivot you're always going to have to pivot in life so if something's not working out you can slightly tweak it and do something else so you don't have to totally change your strategy level but you just pivot so like for us we went from building new builds to selling and we thought you know what we can hold this pull money back out and then rent these out and have a cash flow coming in and then there's a capital gains as well happening here as well for us. So we are looking at the long-term approach. So we're building that cash flow up monthly. So before it was building the capital. Yep. So I think another point that I can give you, like what you start with the end in mind. What is your goals? Do you want to build up a capital pot or do you want to build up a cash flow? So I had um, one of my mentees who was on, on we, were, we had a chat the other day and she's 62 and she wants to leave a nice, property business uh, portfolio for her grandchildren so that she could have two and a half thousand pound a month for her kids that's all she wanted two and a half th- and i thought it was so sweet i thought right <laughs> two and a half thousand pound a month right okay so she started going through her deals that she was looking at and i was like right okay so it was a pub and shops conversions and they were they were great don't get me wrong but we came back down to i was like you don't need capital this is an 18 month project i goes so does it actually fit your criteria or are you wasting time? And she quickly, she was like, I never thought about that. I've been looking at this all week and I've been doing numbers on it all week. So she's wasted seven days, right? So whereas when we started looking at the deals, we looked at an industrial unit and she was like, right, okay, I need something which is, I don't need to worry about it. It's hands off. Once it's done, I can sit back and enjoy the income coming in. Yeah. So we then, like, I was like, right, okay, so how can we do that? Social housing. 
right? Or an FRI lease being put in place with the council or, <coughs> and she was right, okay, so a FRI lease. So we were like, right, okay, so for an FRI lease, who's going to take on long term? So we then started looking, right, okay, so you've already chose your area, Kent. So we started searching in Kent. And when we started searching in Kent, there was industrial units and the rate, rent was coming in three, four, five pound more than what I'd even expected per square foot. So we started looking at the rentals. And then from there, we knew, okay, there's a rental market here. And then we started focusing on what's available to buy. And we started doing a lot of different tactics, like direct to vendor tactics, like start sending out emails to these companies that own industrial units, speak emailing accountants in the area, looking at doing buy to rent back. So that's another strategy that we can use in commercial. Like we buy, we've got the warehouse, there's a tenant in there, he's struggling, he needs a cash injection. We buy the premises off them and rent it back to them. So we've bought the premises, we've helped someone out, it's a win-win-win situation. So we've now took a tenant who was struggling and injected them with cash. They then rent it off us for the next five years. So the benefit that we've got is they're saving, they can claim back all the rental payment of the corporation tax. They've got a cash injection of a couple of hundred thousand pounds. They don't need to move out of the premises. So such a, an amazing strategy that people don't think about, but there's people out there that are struggling to keep their company afloat. So we started looking at all these different strategies <coughs> and with, sorry, excuse me, and with one premises, we looked at the numbers, put all the pricing down, the square footage down. And once that was cash flowing about five, five and a half grand a month, right? So we'd done the numbers again, and then it was still five and a half grand a month. Then we'd done the numbers on maximum, and it was like seven and a half grand a month. And then she's like, so it's at seven and a half thousand pounds a month. Like she targeted in the next two years to get to two and a half thousand pounds for our grandkids. <laughs> So one property, right, could actually get her there so much quicker. Like double. That, that, that particular people. property may or may not go up in in capital value, but it's the cash oh, flow. It's like you say. Yeah. So that so really, then you've added an extra one in there. So focusing on an area, focusing on a strategy, build relationships, and work out whether you're after cash flow or capital. Of course, you can have exactly. both, but not necessarily to the heights that you want of one or the other. Um, so that that's brilliant. Thank you so much for that session. Uh, there's been lots of interesting um, areas we've gone down, and I would like to ask a few more questions, but I need to round it off here <laughs> because there's so many different things we could talk about. But let's just um, finish off with where can people find you? You know, can people find you on yeah, yeah, online? What's the best places to look out for you? <clears throat> so I'm on LinkedIn, Asad Tariq, so A S A D Tariq T A R I Q. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram under AP Investments. So Alpha Papa Space Investments on Facebook and Instagram. Fantastic. And on and what I'll do is I will also put those into the show notes. Anybody that wants to um, check what Azad is up to right now, you can just go and have a look at those. They'll be in the show notes. So thanks very much for joining us. Look forward to part two when we maybe record that in a little bit of time because there's so much more that you've been up to. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks, having me. Thanks, Asad. Take care. Thanks again, Asad, for that honest and full interview. I always find it fascinating to hear others work in this sector. Asad was kind enough to share lots of tips and insights throughout that interview. I hope you enjoyed it and will take some of the ideas we discussed to implement on your own commercial journey. Now, can you believe it's December already? Before long, we'll be into another new year. 
make sure you create the time to review your goals from this last year and evaluate your goals for next year. And more importantly, if you don't have any goals, then you definitely need to do that. So before you know it, that new year will be upon us. So get some planning time set aside during this year. Don't wait till January to do it. You need to get it done now so you're ready on January the 1st to hit the ground running. Now, thank you for tuning into the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. I really do appreciate you, the listener, for investing your time to listen to what myself and our guests have to say. So if you're wondering what to get me for Christmas, then please take a moment to have your say by either sending us a direct message with some feedback or jumping onto iTunes and leaving us a podcast review or both, of course. You see, it's the small things that really count. Thanks again. Catch you next time on the Commercial Property Investor Podcast.